Hi, I'm Jamie from Florida. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests on the program are three of the authors of the blog Free Darko. Uh, they go by the names Bethlehem Shoals. That's uh, Nathaniel Friedman. Jesse Einhorn, who goes as Silverbird 5000. And Jacob Weinstein, who goes by Big Baby Belafonte. Uh, they've compiled a new book called The Macro-Phenomenal Pro-Basketball Almanac, Styles, Stats, and Stars. In today's game, it is a spectacularly lovely, irreverent, and bizarre guide to pro basketball. Um, Almost certainly the only professional sports guide to feature um, complex graphical simile based on the Aztec calendar. Gentlemen, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Okay, so here's the question. Um, What? Well, here's the first in a series of questions, I hope. Um, what was it that drew you guys to write this blog? What was it that wasn't out there that you thought you could bring to the table? I think what started the blog initially was, despite the whole sort of quasi-Marxist manifesto, shout out the top of your lungs, pretend you've everything figured out, quality of the blog, I think we just sort of got this sense that we had a way of watching basketball that wasn't really reflected Obviously, it wasn't going to be reflected in the mainstream press, but also just wasn't reflected in, in you know the growing crop of sports blogs out there. You know, these things they don't begin as a as any sort of purposeful thing you're trying to present to the world. They begin as a little joke among friends that you hope maybe 250 people will read once a week, and all of a sudden, four years later, this happens, and you're not quite sure how it actually all got started. Yeah, I would also say that I think you know we I, there was a certain level of frustration with the lack of. Um, you know, most 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 sports appreciation is sort of oriented toward teams and team fandom, and um, I guess we wanted to you know put out something that was more sort of dedicated to the appreciation of individual players, individual playing style, and wasn't necessarily tied to any kind of you know team-based uh, fandom, um, which we found both you know kind of like aesthetically and also politically limiting. Well, and also no. was, yeah. <laughs> politically limit, yeah, limited. That's actually what I was going to pick up on. Yeah, go ahead and pick that, pick up that ball. Well, I think also a number of us are sort of either in grad school or grad school refugees, and you know, I'll just say it: we're all complete and total eggheads, and we do have sort of an interest in the socio-political dimensions of the game, and sort of an inherent aversion to sort of sports fan culture, and you know, people you know, in big mobs screaming about things. And we also lived in Philadelphia for a while, which might be part of why we have that sort of reactionary streak in us. But so, yeah, there was sort of this conscious decision to say, okay, but what's, what does our fandom mean? You know, we can look over there and see how other people follow the game. And in many cases, how, why, how other people neglect basketball altogether. But, you know, here's a sport we love. Like what's the structure of our interest in it? How did each of you um, personally become so 
passionate about basketball. Nathaniel, you want to pick that up? This is actually probably the worst possible answer I could give. Didn't Jacob, didn't you and I just start randomly watching basketball one summer? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we, we, I think... It was after our Werner Herzog phase, after the extreme wrestling phase, and then basketball <laughs> just stuck, yeah. And, you know, I think, like, you know, like most honest Americans, all of us were interested in sports growing up, but for me, at least, basketball was pretty far down on the list of things I was into sports-wise. I think Jesse had a little more of a fully realized relationship with basketball. I was though. a huge Knicks fan as a child um, up until my 13th birthday, uh, which was my bar mitzvah, which we can get into later. But I basically had like a very, I had a deep and intense love affair with the Knicks. Um, and part of my maybe disillusionment and my what I, what I described as being politically limiting about team fandom comes out of my own alienation of being a Knicks fan in the 1990s. Uh, I started out as like a real team fan and then um, sort of was just, uh, you know, started watching again and, uh, you know, with a new sort of new new uh new look you know new orientation toward the game i don't know i think we all like basketball actually as when we were younger didn't you like it when you were well i'm saying like i was much more into baseball of the 1930s than i was i was kind of interested nathaniel's in, like, 84 years old that's true but <laughs> yeah. but but yeah but basketball was definitely you know i didn't i lived in chapel hill north carolina which there's no pro team within well i guess the hornets but they seemed like they were thousands of miles away and it was just not very high on my list of sports. I also think integral to us getting all back into basketball was we started playing fantasy basketball together. That's true. And then we all started um, leaving long, um, meandering essays on the fantasy basketball message board. That makes it sound like we started playing fantasy basketball before we started liking basketball again, which is a little <laughs> well, bizarre. Well, that would have been difficult. <laughs> they sort of went together there, for me. There was that summer. There was one summer where I think it was the 2000. Yeah, it was the spring of 2000. We just arbitrarily decided to start watching basketball I think because it went well with listening to like Ornette Coleman records That's true. or yes. something so we were just like That's right. I, I remember that. I think another important <laughs> thing is we're all terrible basketball players. Oh, uh, so very <laughs> important was in college we finally found the one basketball court in the world that no one ever goes to. <laughs> yeah. So we all uh, Ardmore, would, Pennsylvania if yeah. anyone's ever been there. So we would uh, go to that basketball court once a week where we were guaranteed to play no one but ourselves. <laughs> right. And that allowed us to sort of you know build the protective bubble in which, you know, basketball love could grow again. Yeah. Okay. So what is the connection between Ornette Coleman and free jazz and uh, basketball that made basketball so appealing? What isn't the connection? Well, hold on. I'm taking this (laughs) one. (laughs) The minister of information on this one. Well, I mean, I should preface this by saying that one of my like major pet peeves is basketball jazz comparisons, because I think basketball has so much more to do with you know more contemporary forms of music and culture than it does something that mostly people playing the game have little or no interest in but i do think though well one i thought the warriors team of 2006 2007 had this certain like freewheeling elastic quality that really reminded me just musically they didn't remind me of like a biggie record or something they reminded me of more nick coleman but i think it's also you know again like in this sort of like very early stage of our interested or reinterest we have to put re in front of everything of our re-immersion in the game or even the early days of the blog like we were just sort of throwing stuff at the wall to see what stuck and seeing what was a plausible way to approach the game and honestly you know there's some funny overlapping rhythms if you put ornette coleman in like a really bad eastern conference game from 2000 on at the same time you know, it's not the same thing as saying at its highest form of perfection, basketball aspires to be Charlie Parker because that would just make me want to jump out the window. But, 
you know, it, there, there's, you know, there, there's certain kinships there. And, and again, like I, I, in terms of sort of like credibility or authenticity, I think our early stages of experimenting with the game had a lot of hits and misses and sort of funny things that we can talk about now, but I would never go in front of a crowd of thousands of people and, you know, stake my life on them or anything. Much like our Arnett Coleman song. <laughs> <laughs> when you describe following basketball less from a perspective of team fandom and more from an individual perspective, I think there is a dichotomy in the discourse about basketball, which is between team play and uh, this sort of and one mixtape um, mm-hmm. fancy moves type of play. But I get the feeling from reading your book that the kind of individual performance that you're interested in is different from that um, who, who can do the craziest uh, between the legs uh, dribble. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, you know, we sort of sat through that period of the Eastern Conference where each team had one player who averaged 25 points a game and there was an isolation for them every possession, and it was terrible. And, yeah, I, I think for us, when we talk about the individual, it has implications for putting together a team, how people interact on a team. It's more saying that you don't have to have this sort of false binary between if someone's going to be themselves, it messes up the system, and uh, you've got to fit into a role or else there's no such thing as a team. I mean, I think we like the idea of people, for want of like a less corny way of putting it, being able to be themselves as players and yet still work with other players in sort of a unit. And I know this sounds like theoretical mumbo-jumbo, and I will freely admit that it's probably just like Cliff Notes post-structuralism, but, you know, I think we've seen teams... I think most people in the audience were thinking, God, this just sounds like Cliff Notes (laughs) (laughs) post-structuralism. Well, but I I think, you know, there, there are teams that we've seen over, you know, at least, well, as far back as the dawn of basketball, but especially, you know, the last you know, decade or so, you've seen teams that do sort of try and mess with the formula. And to, in order to mess with the formula of center does X, point forward, or point forward, gosh, point guard does X, um, power forward does X, you need players who have sort of a more complicated or even just like a more, a less uh, conventionally distributed series of skills and, and abilities. So that's why I think we're so hung up on teams like, you know, the Suns of a few years ago or the Warriors or, you know, uh, the, the Kings from 2000. You know, they, these are all teams where it was clear that they were recognizing what the players could do individually, and sort of looking at that and saying, okay, now how can we build a new system or a new order? And that's when I think you get basketball that you know, as a fan, is more interesting to watch from night to night because, in my mind, you know, watching a team execute a perfect pick and roll every time down the floor is just as boring as like watching Stefan Marbury, you know, get the ball at the top of the key, dribble out the shot clock, and then you know, miss the three-pointer every possession. You know, it's 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 rodent, it's formulaic, and the fact that someone, like, dribbles the ball, like, behind their head and off their leg, to me, is, is just as boring as the fact that, you know, what was done was sort of some platonic ideal that I, you know, the coach probably would rather have robots out there doing that. And yes, I am talking about Larry Brown. <laughs> it's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. More with the guys behind Free Darko in just a minute when we come back. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hi, it's me, Jesse. 
If you're interested in reaching the Sound of Young America's highly literate, intelligent, and awesome audience, you can use the medium of underwriting. Support the Sound of Young America, and we'll thank you by sharing your message with our thousands of listeners, both here on the podcast, on the radio show, and on our website. If you'd like more information about underwriting on the Sound of Young America, drop me a line at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. That's jesse at MaximumFun.org. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are three of the authors of the blog Free Darko. Their brand new, amazing, hilarious, and beautiful book is called The Macro-Phenomenal Pro Basketball Almanac. I myself uh, am a native of the Bay Area, and um, to the extent that I have followed basketball throughout my life, it has been the Golden State Warriors. Um, I I heard you guys use as an example of a team that is of interest to you, the 2006-2007 Golden State Warriors. I think there's a lot of people probably out there in our listening audience, this being public radio, who don't really follow basketball. Um, tell me a little bit about just taking that Warriors team as an example. What was different about them from, uh, from the usual? Well, I think the Warriors are coached by Don Nelson, who has a long history of being sort of the quintessential basketball mad scientist. And he sort of does things that are so weird that sometimes I think even we are like, what is this guy thinking? You know, like he'll, (laughs) he'll decide to put the center at the three point line and just keep him there for three minutes without doing anything with him, just to, just to see what happens. Uh, but the, the Warriors 2006-2007 were this kind of ragtag bunch of very athletic, um, somewhat skilled, but all, also all kind of irresponsible and turnover-prone players. And, you know, it was just they were just this weird hodgepodge of, like, scorers and shooters and kind of miscreants and weirdos. And they suddenly, they made this, you know, they actually acquired Steven Jackson in the middle of that year, and they all of a sudden went from being a just sort of, you know, uh, you know, probably like they were going to not you know, break even on wins for the year. They were going to get a okay but not great draft pick. They just caught fire, and they just started scoring this ridiculous clip. And you'd watch them, and watching them was just utterly revelatory because they just they played like they were completely insane. Like they would throw like behind the back passes across the entire court, and like one guy would get it and just hold the ball and wait for someone else to come and then throw it to him and he would dunk it but the dunk would go out so someone else would take it and dribble all the way back and stand there for five I mean, they they did things that just like every time you watch them play you felt like you were watching someone like make up how to play basketball again not necessarily in a good way and they were on this really hot run towards the end of the year there was like this bizarre like number crunch at the very bottom of the playoff seating and they snuck in on the very last night I think there was something about a team not playing their starters because they wanted to rest them for the playoffs. And they ended up matched up against the Dallas Mavericks, who were, they'd won 63 games that year. They were the number one seed. Yeah, they were number one seed in the West, which is the stronger conference. They'd been to the finals the year before. It was supposed to be their year. And they were coached by Avery Johnson, who was a protege of Greg Popovich, who's the coach of the Spurs, who's another one of these sort of, you know, basketball I mean, he's like an ex-Navy guy. Totalitarians. Who, he's not. I mean, he's he's loosened up with age, but okay. you know, he's definitely <laughs> towards the other end of the spectrum. And somehow, in ways that none of us really quite understand to this day, the Warriors not only beat this, the the Mavs, they beat them again playing this completely unhinged style of basketball. And like 
they do things like, you know, their best player would get two technical fouls and leave the game. Or is that the second series? I mean, it's hard to even remember. Like, it was just total chaos. Yeah. And, you know, somehow everything should have gone wrong for them. And instead, everything went right. And, you know, I think it's a, a travesty that people don't talk about that as, you know, the biggest upset ever. Because it, it was in some ways. I mean, it was, it was a team playing basketball in a way that should have been sort of like something you do for fun when you're going to you know, throw your season away. And instead, they went in and beat the best team in the league. Right. And it was you like know, one of those companies that, you know, pay their workers like one hundred and fifty dollars an hour and like just have like, you know, ping pong tables in their workrooms <laughs> and like do things like have five hour work weeks and they end up being like a Fortune 500 company. You know I, what I mean? It was like it was like a victory for, for anarchy. And yeah, back. I like to think of the Warriors coach Don Nelson as like a Latin American dictator. <laughs> yeah. Right. Where like on one side, he's like promising like a utopian redistribution of labor. And right. Like, you know, everyone gets equal things. And on their side, maybe he's just like it's all just to keep himself in power. Right. That's true. Because like, it's unclear whether he could ever actually win right it might just be an elaborate hoax where <laughs> he, he just gives enough to just the, like, enough to the people to, so he can keep going that's yeah. also true literally on the court like i mean he actually does sort of like distribute like the labor of basketballs and they all said you've got centers shooting three pointers and yeah. point guards no, shooting, forgot you know, scoring yeah, 40 that's... 40 40 points a game i mean you know we have a little obsession with um you know a trend that we we, we, re- we refer to as a positionality which is the idea that players are becoming as they become more individual and sort of into more individually compelling there's also a breakdown of the traditional labor uh, division of labor on the on the floor so you know, centers are in the paint and point guards, you know, pass centers the ball. Are always... oh. no, no, <laughs> I thought you were saying that was the new way of things. No, like, no, 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 no. That's the old way of doing things. That's the traditional division of labor. And, you know, the, the Warriors are like the ultimate example of like an A-positional team where you've got, you know, every player on the court doing everything and there's no real sort of, you know, traditional sort of system that, you know, binds them together. It's just total anarchy. Or maybe it's like totalitarianism with a communist face. What's actually really funny, I mean, the, the Warriors are the utter extreme of that, though, because they had at one point, you know, they had one center, Andres Beardrins, but most of the team was, you know, either it was around like 6'6 six, six and could pass some and dribble some and right. shoot the three. Like they were, a lot of them were interchangeable. And then they had their point guard, Baron Davis, who for a point guard was an incredibly good rebounder. And right. you know, so there's a lot of fluidity there. But then, you know, when we talk about this idea of a positionality, there's sort of in redistribution of labor, they're also sort of more, you know, modulated versions of this where you just sort of do that. And it's not shifting every every second from play to play, but they're they're certainly again. I mean, they're sort of like this completely utopic ideal of what basketball would look like if everyone just like ran out of the floor and was themselves. And what's actually funny is when I, I interviewed Baron Davis at one point, and he he said, you know, people think we're just playing streetball out there that we're not running plays, but you know, we are. We all know what we're doing out there. We all we're all trying to get in the right spot to do things. And I was like, that can't be. He's partly just saying that for spin. Like, you know, like, there's no way if you watch that team. Like, especially there's, there was this one forward, Matt Barnes. He'd been a journeyman. I think I remember him being on the Kings and the Sixers, just completely inconsequential player. And somehow in that system, he turned into, like, this absolute, like, dynamo. Yeah. You know, he would, like, jump on the floor and then shoot a three, like, over his back. And right. then, I mean, obviously... Three I'm ex- steals, three blocks a game. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating some of, like, the feats of those games because they've taken on in this, like, you know mythological quality in my right. head but the, this guy Matt Barnes he was just like a complete nobody and then he got this green light to just go nuts and all of a sudden he became this incredibly valuable player in what, what was in, in some very and here, here comes the Arnett Coleman reference and some sort of like very organic ever shifting you know dependent on its own internal logic of the moment way uh, 
you know, an organized form of basketball. Don Nelson is in the Bay Area a both much beloved and <laughs> somewhat despised figure because he's transformed all these teams, both in his first uh, stint coaching the team in the uh, late 80s and early 90s mm-hmm. um, and this team uh, today. His teams have often been surprisingly successful but never ultimately successful. Um, and I wonder if you guys feel like you're giving up something by giving up the idea of getting emotionally involved with a team just because of, you know, the jersey, the name on the jersey on their back or, uh, you know, that that accident of geography. Well, I mean, I don't I don't think any of us feel like it's wrong to root for a team or not fun to root for a team. I mean, certainly. And again, this is this whole if there are enough individuals on a team that compel you, what is it? The power of the what compels you? What horror movie is that from? Oh, whatever. Um, the point being, you know, I think we certainly feel that, you know, a team, again, we've been talking about the Warriors not as a, as individuals, but as this system for the past, like, three minutes. So certainly we understand the idea of rooting for a team. And I, I know there is supposed to be some inherent value in the heartbreak of almost getting there and then having it, like, you know, yanked away, and that's supposed to teach you some lesson about life. But, and you know, it's not like we haven't been enamored of teams that have almost gotten there, because you know, as a rule, most of the kind of the te- most of the teams we like don't end up winning winning championships. I mean, it's true. Defense wins championships. Big men win championships. Unfortunately, you, you know, we're sort of used to at this point seeing the teams we like the most. You know, sometimes not even make the playoffs. And I, I do understand how someone who who lives somewhere and watches a team and gets their hopes up could be heartbroken to see the team just never make it over the hump. Um, but again, I guess my, my question would be like, well, why not have a couple teams you're sort of invested in? So maybe if, you know, if the Warriors don't make it over the hump, you'll still have someone to root for. You know, because that's not unheard of. You talk to plenty of people who are like, well, my wife's a whatever fan and I'm a whatever fan. And so, you know, if, unless they're playing each other. No, this is something you hear on like, like sports no, radio all the time, yeah. So I don't think it's 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 more just that idea that you shouldn't you shouldn't shoot yourself in the foot <laughs> just because the team your team is not winning a championship because only one team wins the championship each year and basketball especially has the lowest number of teams that have won the championship historically of any major sport. So chances are, like newsflash to everyone anyone with a basketball team in your city, there's a pretty good chance your team is not going to win the championship this year. So yeah. what are you going to do, like? You you just want to give up right now? I mean, that seems to you know. And again, like I was, I was actually in the Bay for for one of the during the run TMC years. For my father was on a sabbatical there, and I knew that team wasn't gonna you know win a right. championship. But they were. It was amazing to have that team in the in in that area because the team was just the like, tremendous and dynamic. And I think it's a testament to the way we talk about basketball, and not just us and like our weird little intellectual you know biodome or whatever, but a lot of like serious fans of the game like that that team is like people still talk about that team with like utter reverence even though they never won a ring like right. people think in a way that, they don't talk about necessarily like the you know 2004 Pistons or something i mean it's not just winning a championship doesn't even necessarily guarantee you a place in history in some ways a beautiful failure could be yeah. you know sort of a more a more historically permanent uh institution that and one that actually succeeds let's close by talking about a, one of the sort of patron saint figures of Free Darko and one of the great individual basketball players of our era, um, uh, Gilbert Arenas, who yes. actually wrote the foreword for your book. 
What was it that fascinated you guys uh, about this man and also about the way he plays basketball? Well, Gilbert Arenas is known for, I mean, as much as off-court antics as, you know, what he does on the court. And he seems to definitely be one of the few professional athletes that, you know, approaches the game with a sense of fun and, like, self-reflective. He, you know, he's aware of it as being entertainment and, you know, he's aware of it having dimensions beyond just winning and losing, I think. And that, you know, making a three-pointer means something, but, you know, doing it in a certain way at a certain time, you know, and then, like, flashing a grin to the crowd makes it a whole different sort of shot. Um, so there's that element of it that we picked up on. And also, he just is a very crazy man. So he, <laughs> I mean, um, in that sense, it was an obvious patron saint for us. Well, uh, again, yeah, also because, you know, athletes are not supposed to be... I don't. I mean, Gilbert's not insane, but you know there is a certain like normativity associated <laughs> with athlete personalities, and you know every generation or so, there's some guy who actually is not only has sort of a few screws loose, but also isn't doesn't have them loose in a way that like lands him in jail or something like that. You know, and that's you know Gilbert is just sort of like this benign eccentric um, who nonetheless manages to play basketball at a very high level and earn the respect of his. You know, peers and opponents and all that. So, again, you know, it, it's not. I was about to say it's not apples and oranges, which is possibly the least like, <laughs> meaningful. Let's talk about Cliff Notes post-structuralism. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I would also just say that you know, yeah, I mean, Gilbert's a player who mixes his on-court antics and his off-court antics in a way. I mean, he he's someone who, I mean, I think he certainly has plenty of off-court antics. One of my favorites is that he collects autographs from every player in the league. So he's like an all-star player, but like he also like goes around and makes a point of collecting every autograph he can find. He has like an autograph collection. He also freely admits voting for himself like several hundred times <laughs> for the all-star game. So like you know, <clears throat> trying to commit voter fraud to get himself into, the, or I guess it's not fraud necessarily but you know I don't, I don't think there's a, a governing body for all-star <laughs> well i'm just saying you know he, it's, it's just interesting that he was, he so freely admitted voting for himself so many times but um you know he's also someone who even on the court does things that you know i think everyone would agree are like a little wacky so like one of the things we talk about in the book is that he shoots he shoots a lot of shots he shoots, makes a lot of three-pointers takes a lot of three-point shots from like insanely far away sometimes needlessly far away and there are a couple of great games that we sort of point to where he um you know dribbles down the court and with plenty of time left pulls up like at 28 feet which which is about five feet, six feet uh, behind the three-point line, and shoots a three, and interestingly makes the three. But it's also to us kind of interesting because to an outside observer, it would seem kind of you know ridiculous that someone would voluntarily choose to shoot from farther away than necessary. But for Gilbert, I think he takes a certain amount of pleasure in um, you know making the odds even longer for himself, so that when he succeeds, it's even more impressive and kind of a uh, kind of crazy. So he uh, he's just a sort of a fascinating figure, and I think someone that we should all get to know better. Well, Nathaniel, Jesse, Jacob, thank you so much for taking this time to be on The Sound of Young America. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Bethlehem Shoals, Silverbird 5000, and Big Baby Belafonte are the authors of the insightful, hilarious, and beautiful-to-look-at new book, Free Darko presents the macro-phenomenal pro-basketball almanac, Styles, Stats, and Stars, in today's game. Later, guys. Take it easy. Take care. Another Sound of Young America program in the books. 
I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Our intern is Brian Fernandez. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. That's MaximumFun.org for our full archive, even more than is available in iTunes, as well as our other shows like Jordan Jesse Go. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. That's J-E-S-S-E at MaximumFun.org. And remember, that announcement at the top of the show isn't a trick. The show is supported by your donation, so if you like the show, visit our webpage and click on Donate. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.